0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, on our 150th episode of the podcast, we're going to hear The Shorn Lamb by Gene Stafford, which was published in The New Yorker in January
1: of 1953. At the thought of her mother's golden hair in the firelight and the smell of her perfume in the intimate warmth, and the sound of her voice saying, Isn't this gay, Miss Baby? The tears came faster. For in her heavy heart, Hannah felt certain that now her hair was cut off, her mother would never want to sit so close to her again.
0: The story was chosen by Garth Greenwell, whose first novel, What Belongs to You, was published in 2016. His second book of fiction, Cleanness, will come out in January. Hi, Garth.
1: Hi, Deborah.
0: So can you tell me what made you choose a story by Gene Stafford to read today?
1: You know, I am a late discoverer of Gene Stafford. Um, I studied poetry for most of my, um, really for most of my life. And um, Gene Stafford was, to me, um, horrifyingly, only Robert Lowell's first wife, right? And um, I picked her up recently, and um, you know I am a, a convert and have a convert's enthusiasm. I just think she's extraordinary.
0: And what is it that that defines her for you?
1: So there's this remarkable um, ability that she has to balance this kind of lacerating irony with a very plangent pathos. And that's a combination that I find very few writers get right. I mean, I think she faces up to, you know, this very, very brutal sense of um, how people treat one another. That austerity is combined with an almost Baroque um syntax and especially diction she loves these sort of very recherche words and that too that combination um, of kind of lushness and then something almost acidic is really appealing to me
0: yeah i don't think you're alone in having come to her late or having not come to her before that because i don't think she's very widely read these days um i wonder why why you think that is
1: Well, you know, I I mean, I think um, she is not interested in flattering our sensibilities. And I think she's not interested in some of the kind of usual pleasures we associate with fiction. Um, You know, there's a way in which... um, Her very precision, I think, makes her feel um, a little antiquated. The precision of her observation, also the precision of her syntax, and her love of these kind of old world words that sometimes you feel like she's rehabilitating. You know, there's a word in Mm -hmm. in the story I'm going to read: dulcified. that I've never seen before in, in prose. And that you do sort of feel like she's stroking a cat as she uses it. And there's something in that maybe that doesn't feel quite contemporary. But in other ways, I mean, you know, I'm not sure I can think of many other writers from the period. Well, not from the period, many other writers just at all mm-hmm. who feel to me so fearless as they sort of face up to um, uncomfortable, or sometimes even terrifying truths, you know, both of her, I think, great novels, *The Mountain Lion* and, and *The Catherine Wheel*, are in some ways very, very, very brutal and very frank in their dealing with sexuality and with desire. Um, And with those things sort of in the world and lives of children, I think all of those things make us very uncomfortable. Um, But it's very much our loss not to be reading Gene Stafford much more. And as I say, I'm a convert and a proselytizer and I say justice for Gene Stafford.
0: (laughs) It may also be because, you know, the, the novels were written early in her writing career in the, in the 40s and 50s, early 50s. And after that, it was only stories, pretty much.
1: Um, yeah. And she stopped writing for a long time, you know, when she finally got um, a little bit of personal happiness in her life. You know, <laughs> she stopped writing for a long time. And you do get the sense that writing for her was really very difficult, um, was a kind of of agony, and, you know, I think one can feel that in the writing. And one does feel just that, you know, she's just unsparing of everyone. She's unsparing of herself. She's unsparing of, you know, her fiction is very often autobiographical, and she's unsparing of her family. She's unsparing of Robert Lowell. She's unsparing of, you know, the partisan review types who sort of made her feel like a country bumpkin at their parties. But then there's also, and I think this is really true of the story, Um, we're going to talk about, there is this, like, intense love for these characters, too.
0: And you had a little uh, internal debate about which story to read, and you you ended up with this one, The Shorn Lamb. Um, What is it about this one that makes it feel so
1: characteristic? So a couple of things. One is that the setup of the story has this incredible economy, and I think that a lot of Gene Stafford's best stories... Um, are almost static in their kind of primary plot, or they're almost sort of framed by a single action or situation. So in this story, there is a five-year-old girl who is sitting hidden at the bottom of the attic steps and peering through the crack of the door at her mother who is on the telephone with her, her mother's sister, with the child's aunt, complaining about her husband. And that's the whole story. From beginning to end, there's a little coda where she leaves the stairwell. But from beginning to end, we are in this static situation. And the very um, sort of stationary nature of this framing scene gives the story permission to go everywhere. And so there's a way in which you you feel like, you know, she just – fills the story with life and with the world of these characters. And that's something I love a lot. And and then the other thing that feels um, really characteristic and really remarkable in this story is what I was talking about before, that there is, I mean, this story is hugely funny, very ironic, quite acidic. And then by the end of it, the defense of irony has been stripped away and one is staring into an abyss, and that abyss is the very brutal way that um, parents turn their children into weapons they can use against each other.
0: Right. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Garth Greenwell reading The Shorn Lamb by Gene Stafford.
1: The Shorn Lamb. Oh, there's no whitewashing the incident. The child's hair is a sight, and it will be many moons, I can tell you, before I'll forgive Hugh Talmage. But listen to me. The worst of it is that this baby of five has gone into a decline like a grown woman, like you or me, dear, at our most hysterical. Sudden fits of tears for no apparent reason, and then simply hours of brooding. She won't eat? She probably doesn't sleep. I can't stand it if she's turning mental. The child, Hannah, sitting hidden on the attic steps, listened as her mother talked on the telephone to Aunt Louise. The door to the bedroom across the hall was half open, And through the crack of the door at the foot of the attic steps Hannah saw that in the course of the night her parents had disarrayed the pale green blanket cover, and now, half off the bed, drooping and askew, it looked like a great crumpled new leaf, pulled back here and there to show the rosy blankets underneath. In the bedroom it is spring, thought Hannah, and outdoors it is snowing on the Christmas trees that is a riddle. Her mother lay in the center of the big bed, which was as soft and fat as the gelded white Persian cat who dozed at her side, his scornful head erect, as if he were arrested not so much by sleep as by a coma of boredom and disgust. A little earlier, before he struck this pose, He had sniffed and disdained the bowl of cream on his mistress's breakfast tray, and when she had tried to cajole him into drinking it, he had coolly thrashed his tail at her. In the darkness of her enclosure, Hannah yearned, imagining herself in the privileged cat's place beside her mother watching the mellowing, pillowing, billowing snow as it whirled down to meet the high tips of the pine trees that bordered the frozen formal garden. If she were nephew, the cat, she would burrow into the silky depths of the bed up to her eyes and rejoice that she was not outside like a winter bird coming to peck its suet and snowy crumbs at the feeding station it was ugly and ungenerous here where she was on the narrow splintery stairs and up in the attic a mouse or a rat scampered on lightly clicking claws between the trunks some hibernating bees buzzed peevishly in their insomnia stingy and lonesome like old people the shuddens worried their grievances stealthily and hannah spying and eavesdropping—a sin and she knew it—felt the ends of her cropped hair and ran a forefinger over her freshly combed boy's cut, the subject of her mother's conversation. Something like sleep touched her eyeballs, though this was early morning and she had not been awake longer than an hour. But it was tears, not drowsiness, that came. They fell without any help from her. Her cheeks did not rise up as they usually did when she cried to squeeze themselves into puckers like old apples. Her mouth did not open in a rent of woe. No part of her body was affected at all except the eyes themselves, from which streamed down these mothering runnels. Why did he do it? Her mother's question into the telephone was an impatient scream. Why do men do half the things they do? Why does Arthur treat you in public as if you were an enlisted man? I swear I'll someday kill your rear admiral for you. Why does Elliot brag to Francis that he's unfaithful? Because they're sadists, every last one of them. I am very anti-man today. What is anti-man? whispered Hannah. The stools on either side of the fireplace in the den were ottomans, and sometimes Hannah and her mother sat on them in the late afternoons, with a low table between them on which were set a Chinese pot of verbena tisane, two cups, and a plate of candied orange rind. At the thought of her mother's golden hair in the firelight and the smell of her perfume in the intimate warmth and the sound of her voice saying, Isn't this gay, Miss Baby? The tears came faster, for in her heavy heart, Hannah felt certain that now her hair was cut off, her mother would never want to sit so close to her again. Unable to see through the narrow opening of the door any longer, She leaned her face against the wall and felt her full tears moistening the beaver board as she listened to her mother's recital of Saturday's catastrophe. On the face of it, the facts are innocent enough, Louise. He took her to town on Saturday to buy her a pair of shoes, having decided for his own reasons that I have no respect for my children's feet. The shoes he got are too odious, but that's another story. Then, when he brought her back, here she was, cropped, looking like a rag doll. He said she'd begged to have it done. Of course she'd done nothing of the kind. To put the most charitable construction on the whole affair, I could say that when he went into the barber shop to have his own haircut, he'd had a seizure of amnesia and thought he had Andy with him or Johnny or Huey and decided to kill two birds with one stone. And then afterward he was afraid of what I'd say and so cooked up this canard and more than likely bribed her to bear him out. The way men will weasel out of their missteps, it isn't moral. It shocks me. He did not think I was Andy or Johnny or Huey, Hannah said to herself. In the barber shop at her father's club, There had been no one but grown men and a fat, stuffed skunk that stood in front of the mirror between two bottles of bay rum, its leathery nose pointed upward as if it were trying to see the underside of its chin in the looking-glass. Through a steaming towel her father had muttered, Just do as I say, Homer. Cut it off. And the barber, a lean man with a worried look on his red face, flinched then shrugged his shoulders and began to snip off Hannah's heavy curls, frowning with disapproval and remarking once under his breath that women, even though they were five years old, were strictly forbidden on these premises. On the drive home, her peeled head had felt cold and wet, and she had not liked the smell that gauzily hovered around her, growing more cloying as the heater in the car warmed up. At a red light, her father had turned to her and, patting her on the knee, had said, You look as cute as a button, young fellow. He had not seemed to hear her when she said, I do not, I'm not a young fellow. Nor had he noticed when she moved over against the door, as far away from him as she could get, hating him bitterly and hating her nakedness. Presently, He turned on the radio to a news broadcast and disputed out loud with the commentator. Hannah, left all alone, had stared out the window at the wolfish winter. In one snow-flattened field, she saw tall flames arising from a huge wire trash basket, making the rest of the world look even colder and whiter and more unkind. Her father scowled giving the radio what for, swearing at the slippery roads, carrying on an absent-minded tantrum all by himself. Once, halted by a woman driver whose engine was stalled, he'd said, Serves her right. She ought to be home at this time of day, tending to business. As they turned in their own drive, he said a lie. That was a fine idea of yours to have your hair cut off. She had never said any such thing. All she had said, when they were having lunch in a brown, cloudy restaurant, was that she would rather go to the barber shop with him than wait at Grandma's. But she had not contradicted him, for he did not countenance contradiction from his children. "'I'm an old-fashioned man,' he announced every morning to his three sons and his two daughters. "'I am the autocrat of this breakfast table.' And though he said it with a wink and a chuckle, it was clear that he meant business. Johnny, who was intellectual, had told the other children that an autocrat was a person like Hitler, and he had added sarcastically, that sure is something to brag about, I must say. The voice speaking into the phone took on a new tone, and Hannah, noticing this, looked out through the crack again. What? Oh, please don't change the subject, pet. I really want your help. It isn't a trifle. It's terribly important. I really think it is the final effrontery. All right, then, if you promise that we can come back to it. With her free hand, Hannah's mother lightly stroked the cat, who did not heed, and she lay back among her many pillows, listening to her sister but letting her eyes rove the room as if she were planning changes in its decoration. Yes, I did hear it, but I can't remember where, she said inattentively. Then, smiling in the pleasure of gossip, forgetting herself for a moment, she went on, Perhaps I heard it from Peggy the night she came to dinner with that frightful new man of hers. That's it. It was from him I heard it, and automatically discounted it for no other reason than that I took an instantaneous dislike to him. If he is typical of his department, the CIA must be nothing more nor less than the Gestapo. Hannah's head began to ache, and she rolled it slowly, looking up the steep, ladder-like steps into the shadowy attic. She was bored now that the talk was not of her, and she only half heard her mother's agile voice rising, descending, laughing quickly, bleeding. Oh, no, it's not possible. And she sucked her fingers one by one. Her tears had stopped, and she missed them, as she might have missed something she had lost. Like her hair, like all her golden princess curls that the barber had gazed at sadly as they lay dead and ruined on the tiled floor. Now that Hannah's hair was short, her days were long. It was a million hours between breakfast and lunch, and before it had been no time at all, because her mother, still lying in her oceanic bed, had every morning made Hannah's curls, taking her time, telling anyone who telephoned that she would call back that just now she was busy playing with this angel's hair. Today was Wednesday, and Hannah had lived four lifetimes since Saturday afternoon. Sunday had been endless, even though her brothers and her sister had been as exciting as ever with their jokes and contests and their acrobatics and their game of cops and robbers that had set the servants wild. But even in their mad preoccupation, it had been evident that the sight of Hannah embarrassed them. The baby looks like a skinned cat, said Andy, and Huey said it was a dopey thing to do. The poor little old baby looks like a mushroom. The parents did nothing to stop this talk, for all day long they were fighting behind the closed door of the din, not even coming out for meals, their voices growing slower and more sibilant as they drank more. "'I hate them,' Johnny had said in the middle of the long, musty afternoon, when the cops were spent and the robbers were sick of water pistol fights. "'When they get stinking, I hate them,' said Johnny." I bet a $1,000 he had had a couple when he had them cut the baby's hair. Janey shouted, Oh, that baby, 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 baby. Is that goofy baby the only pebble on the beach? Why do they have to mess up Sunday fighting over her? I'm going crazy. And she ran around in a circle like a dog, pulling at her hair with both hands. On Monday morning, When Hannah's father took the older children off to Marion Country Day School on his way to the city, she had nearly cried herself sick, feeling that this Monday the pain of their desertion was more than she could bear. She would not let go of Janie's hand, and she cried, You'll be sorry if you come back and find I'm dead. Janie, who was ten and hot-blooded, she took after Daddy, who had Huguenot blood, had slapped Hannah's hand and said, The nerve of some people's children. Hannah had stood under the port-cochere, shivering in her wrapper and slippers, until the car went out the driveway between the tulip trees. She had waved and called, Goodbye, dearest Janie and Johnny and Andy and Huey. Only Johnny had looked back. He rolled down the window and leaned out and called, Ta-ta, half-pint. They were all too old and busy to pay much attention to her, though often they brought her presents from school, a jawbreaker or a necklace made of paper clips. The four older children were a year apart, starting with John, who was 13, and ending with Janie, and when family photographs were taken, they were sometimes lined up according to height. These were called stair step portraits. And while Hannah, of course, was included, she was so much smaller than Janie that she spoiled the design. And one time Uncle Harry, looking at a picture taken on Palm Sunday when all five children were sternly holding their palms like spears, had said, pointing to Hannah, Is that the runt of the litter, or is it a toy breed? Andy, who was Uncle Harry's pet, said, We just keep it around the house for its hair. It's made of spun gold, you know, and very invaluable." This evidently was something the barber had not known, for he had swept the curls into a dustpan and thrown them into a chute marked waste. She wondered how long they would keep her now that her sole reason for existence was gone. In the other days, After Daddy and the children left and the maids began their panicky, silent cleaning flinging open all the windows to chill the house to its heart, Hannah would run upstairs to the big bedroom to sit on the foot of the bosomy bed and wait while her mother drank her third cup of coffee and did the crossroad puzzle in the Tribune. When she was stuck for a definition, she would put down her pencil and thoughtfully twist the diamond ring on her finger. If it caught the sun, Hannah would close her eyes and try to retain the flashing swords of green and purple, just as she unconsciously tried to seal forever in her memory the smell of the strong Italian coffee coming in a thin black stream out of the silver pot. Hannah remembered one day when her mother said to the cat, What is that wretched four-letter word that means allowance for waste, nephew? We had it just the other day. Finally, when the puzzle was done and Edna had taken away the tray, she stretched out her arms to Hannah, who scrambled into her embrace, and she said, I suppose you want your tawny tresses curled, and held her at arm's length and gazed at her hair with disbelieving eyes. Bring us the brush, baby." All the while she brushed, then combed, then made long, old-fashioned sausage curls, turning and molding them on her index finger. She talked lightly and secretly about the dream she had had, and Christmas plans, and what went on inside Nephew's head, and why it was that she respected but could not bear Andy's violin teacher. She included Hannah as if she were thirty years old, asking for her opinion or her corroboration of something. Do you agree with me that Nephew is the very soul of Egypt, or do you think there are Chinese overtones in his style? After telling a dream—her dreams were full of voyages—one time she sailed into Oslo in Noah's Ark. And another time she went on the Queen Mary to Southampton in her night clothes without either luggage or a passport. She said, What on earth do you suppose that means, Hannah? My id doesn't seem to know where it is at. Bewitching, indecipherable, she always dulcified this hour with her smoky, loving voice and her loving fingers that sometimes could not resist meandering over Hannah's head ruining a curl by cleaving through it as she exclaimed, Dear Lord, I never saw such stuff as this. Actually, her own hair was the same vivacious color and the same gentle texture as Hannah's. And sometimes her hands would leave the child's head and go to her own, to stroke it lovingly. Lately now, for this last month— when the afternoons were snug and short and the lamps were turned on early and the hearth-fires smelled of nuts. There had been another hour as well, when Hannah and her hair had been the center of attention. Every day at half-past two, she and her mother drove in the toy-like English car over to Mr. Robinson Fowler's house, three miles away, On the top of a bald and beautiful hill from which it was possible on a clear day to see the beaches of Long Island. In a big, dirty studio, jammed with plaster casts and tin cans full of turpentine and stacked up canvases and nameless metal odds and ends, Mr. Fowler, a large, quiet man who mumbled when he talked, was painting a life-size portrait of Hannah and her mother. Her mother, wearing a full skirt of scarlet felt and a starched white Gibson girl's shirt and a black ribbon in her hair, sat on a purple Victorian sofa. And Hannah, in a blue velvet jacket trimmed with black frogs and a paler blue accordion-pleated skirt, stood leaning against her knee. In the picture, these colors were all different, all smudgy and gray. And the point of this, said Mr. Fowler, was to accent the lambencies of the hair. Before they took their pose, all the morning's careful curls were combed out. For Mr. Fowler wanted to paint Hannah's hair, he murmured in his closed mouth, in a state of nature. Occasionally he emerged from behind his easel and came across to them with his shambling, easy-going, friendly gait. ...to push back a lock of hair that had fallen over Hannah's forehead. And the touch of his fingers, huge as they were, was as light as her mother's. Hannah liked the heat of the studio, and the smell of the tea perpetually brewing on an electric grill. And the sight of the enormous world of hills and trees and farms and rivers through the enormous windows and she liked the quiet, which was broken only once or twice in the course of the hour's sitting by an exchange of a casual question and answer between Mr. Fowler and her mother, half the time about her hair. "'It must never be cut,' said the painter one day, "'not a single strand of it.' After the sitting was over, and Hannah and her mother had changed back into their regular clothes,' Mr. Fowler drew the burlap curtains at the windows and turned on the soft lamps. Then he and her mother sat back in two scuffed leather armchairs, drinking whiskey and talking in a leisurely way, as if all the rest of the time in the world were theirs to enjoy in this relaxed geniality. Hannah did not listen to them. With her cup of mild, limony tea— she sat on a high stool before a blackboard at the opposite end of the room and drew spider webs with a nubbin of pink chalk. Mr. Fowler and her mother never raised their voices or threw things at each other or stormed out of the room banging doors. And Hannah was sorry when it was time to go home where that kind of thing went on all the time, horrifying the housemaids, who never stayed longer than two months at the most, although the cook, who had a vicious tongue herself, had been with them ever since Johnny could remember. The picture, when it was finished, was going to hang in the drawing room over an heirloom lowboy, where now there hung a pair of crossed pays used by Hannah's father and his adversary in a jaunty, bloody studentenmensur at Freiburg the year he went abroad to learn German. The lilac scar from the duel was a half-moon on his round right cheek. Now the picture would never be finished, since Hannah's corn-tassel hair was gone, and the sunny hour at the start of the day and the tea-time one at the end were gone with it. Hannah, sitting on the attic stairs, began to cry again as she thought of the closed circle of her days. Even her sister's and her brother's return from the school was not the fun it had been before. Her haircut had become a household issue over which all of them squabbled, taking sides belligerently. Janie and Andy maintained it did not matter. All right, they said. What if the baby did look silly? After all, she didn't go to school, and nobody saw her. Johnny and Hughie and the cook and the maids said that it did matter, and Johnny, the spokesman for that camp, railed at his father behind his back and called him a dastard. But all the same, no one paid any attention to Hannah. When they spoke of the baby, they might have been speaking of the car or a piece of furniture— One would never have known that she was in the room, for even when they looked directly at her, their eyes seemed to take in something other than Hannah. She felt that she was already shrinking and fading, that all her rights of being seen and listened to and caressed were ebbing away. Chilled and exposed as she was, she was becoming, nonetheless, invisible. The tears came less fast now, and she heard her mother say, How can I help looking at it closely? I shall eventually have to go to an analyst, as you perfectly well know, if I am to continue this marriage until the children are reasonably grown. But in the meantime, until I get my doctor, who can I talk to but you? I wouldn't talk to you if you weren't my sister, because I don't think you're discreet at all. Sad in her covert. Hannah saw that her mother was now sitting up straight against the headboard and was smoking a cigarette in long, meditative puffs. The smoke befogged her frowning forehead. "'Forget it, darling,' she continued. "'I know you are a tomb of silence. Look, do let me spill the beans and get it over with.' It will put me into a swivet, I dare say, and I'll have to have a drink in my bath, but the way I feel after these nights I've had, that's in the cards, anyhow. Oh, Christ, Louise, don't preach to me. Briefly, she put down the telephone and dragged nephew to her side. Then she resumed, excuse me, I was adjusting my cat. Now, dear, right now you can forget my charitable construction because, of course, that's rot. At this juncture, neither one of us does anything by accident. I cannot believe that criminals are any more ingenious than wives and husbands when their marriages are turning sour. Do you remember how fiendish the Ireland's were? Well, The night before the hair-cutting we had a row that lasted until four, starting with Rob and going on from him to all the other men I know. He thinks it's bad form, and that's exactly how he puts it, that I still speak fondly of old Beau's. He suspects me of the direst things with that poor pansy the decorator sent out to do the carpets on the stairs, and he's got it firmly rooted in his mind that Rob and I are in the middle of a red-hot affair. He doesn't know the meaning of friendship. He's got a sand dune for a soul. He suggested loathsomely that Rob and I were using Hannah as a blind. Oh, his implications were too cynical to repeat. All this went on and on until I said that I would leave him. You know that, old blind alley where any faint is useless because when five children are involved one's hands are tied. Unless one can be proved mad, if only I could be, I would give my eyes to be sent away for a while to some insane asylum like that one Elizabeth loved so. It was hideous the whole battle. We were so squalid with drink. We drink prodigiously these days. The ice ran out, and we didn't even take time to go get more, so we drank whiskey and tap water as if we were in a cheap hotel, and I kept thinking how demeaning this is. But I couldn't stop. This was the worst quarrel we've ever had, by far the most fundamental. The things we said, we could have killed each other. In the morning, not even our hangovers could bring us together, and let me tell you, they were shattering. If I hadn't known it was a hangover, I would have sent for an ambulance without thinking twice. Hugh sidled around like a wounded land crab and swore he had fractured his skull. Fortunately, the children, all except the baby, had been asked to the fosters to skate, so at least we didn't have to put up appearances. We do that less and less as it is. But finally, we began to pull ourselves together about noon with Bloody Marys, and when he proposed that he take Hannah into town and buy her lunch and some shoes, I almost forgave him everything. I was so delighted to have the house to myself." I would not rise to that bait about my neglecting the welfare of my children's feet. All I could think of was just being alone. I should have known. I think I might have sensed what was up if I hadn't been so sick, because as they were about to leave, the baby asked why I hadn't curled her hair, and Hugh said, you leave that to me today. Now, looking back on it, I can see that he rolled his eyes in that baleful planning way of his and licked one corner of his mouth. But even if I had noticed, I still would never have dreamed he would be so vile. It goes without saying that we have been at sword's points ever since, and it doesn't help matters to see the child so woebegone wearing this look of, "'What did I do to deserve this?' How can one explain it away as an accident to a child when one perfectly knows that accident is not involved? Her misery makes me feel guilty. I am as shy of her as if I had been an accessory. I can't console her without spilling all the beans about Hugh. Besides, you can't say to a child, Darling, you are only a symbol. It was really my beautiful hair that was cut off, not yours. Rob crushed? Oh, for God's sake, no, not crushed. That's not Rob's style. He's outraged. His reaction, as a matter of fact, annoys me terribly, for he takes the whole thing as a personal affront and says that if Hugh had wanted to make an issue of my afternoons in his studio, he should have challenged him to a duel with the Freiburg Swords. His theory, you see, is that Hugh has been smoldering at the thought of these testimonials of his manliness being replaced by the portrait. Rob claims that Hugh hates art, as of course he does, and that it is the artist in him, Rob, not the potential rival that he is attacking. Needless to say, this gives him a heaven-sent opportunity to berate me for living in the camp of the enemy. He was horrid on Monday. He called me an opportunist and a broodmare. It depresses me that Rob, who is so intuitive about most things, can't see that I am the victim, that my values have been impugned. Today I hate all men. What am I going to do? What can I do? I'm taking her this afternoon to Angelo to see what he can salvage out of the scraps that are left. I'll get her a new doll, one with short hair. That's all I can do now. The picture will never be finished, so the dueling swords will stay where they are. And I will stay where I am. Oh, there's no end. Why on earth does one have children? For a minute or two, her mother was silent leaning back with her eyes closed, listening to Aunt Louise. Hannah no longer envied the cat curled into her mother's arm. She hated his smug white face, and she hated her mother's sorrowful smile. Hot and desolate and half-suffocated, she wished she were one of the angry bees. If she were a bee she would fly through the crack of the attic door and sting nephew and her mother and her father and Janie and Andy and Mr. Fowler. Zzz, buzzed the child to herself. After the telephone conversation was over and her mother had got up and gone to run her bath, Hannah let herself silently out the door into the hall and went downstairs to the kitchen. The cook was dicing onions, weeping. "'There's my baby,' she said as Hannah came to stand beside her. "'My very own baby.' She put down her knife and wiped her hands and her eyes on her apron and scooped Hannah up in a bear hug. "'I love you, Maddie,' said Hannah. The cook's teary face looked surprised, and she put the child down and said, run along now, Kittikins. Maddie's got work to do. Hannah went into the den and kneeled on the window seat to watch the snow settling deeply on the branches of the trees. I love you, snow, she said. It fell like sleep.
0: That was Garth Greenwell reading The Shorn Lamb by Jean Stafford. The story was published in The New Yorker in January of 1953 and was included under the title Cops and Robbers in the Collected Stories of Gene Stafford in 1969. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead,
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Garth, in a way, this is um, a reversal of the, of the Samson story. You know, the powerful man takes the girl's hair and and she loses all of her power to command those around her and to to receive admiration do you think that that idea was sort of somehow in stafford's mind
1: i guess it's kind of hard to imagine that it wasn't um mm. you know and especially with the original title the shorn lamb which to me has such a kind of biblical resonance to it um but you know what's really heartbreaking about this story is not that this child loses power, but that actually what is revealed is that that power was always illusory and actually had nothing to do with her. Um you know, so she imagines that this hair makes everyone love her. Well, in fact, no, you know, as the mother says devastatingly, um, she's always just been a symbol. yeah, and really, you know, this has always been about something else.
0: She's always been completely objectified. And and the girl, not just the hair. Um, She's always referred to as the baby, you know, this general category. I think the mother only calls her by name once. No one even really seems to understand how old she is because she's obviously not a baby. right? Um, And the mother talks to her as though she's a grown woman when she's just chatting away. Um, Right. (laughs) One of the things that was interesting to me was that in losing her long hair and getting this, you know, crew cut, um, she doesn't become a boy. She isn't described, oh, now she's not a girl anymore. She looks like a boy. She, she becomes invisible. Right. Um, and I wonder why, what is that symbol? You know, that the hair is a symbol. What is it a symbol of?
1: Right. Well, you know, it does seem for the mother, you know, it's a symbol of herself. Um, And, you know, loving this child, grooming this child, bringing this child into her confidence is in fact all this elaborate form of self-love. And, you know, and then for the father, it becomes an elaborate form of violence, you know, because he steals the intimacy between mother and child He sort of symbolically shears the mother's beauty away, and he steals from her this intimacy she has developed with this artist. Um, You know, we have such a sense of the reality of Hannah and that she exists and that, you know, her existence makes some claim upon the world. And yet no one in this house, I mean, no one from, you know, her siblings to her parents to the cook um, actually sees her. She's always just standing in, you know. I mean, she could be. She has less existence for them than the cat does, really. You know, you have a feeling that the cat is is, you know, has more purchase on the mother's real attention than Hannah does.
0: Yeah, but do you think that the other children are known by their parents?
1: It's a really good question. It's interesting. The question I was thinking a little bit about autobiography in this story because so many of Jean Stafford's stories are. Really autobiographical. The first few years of her life were spent, um, you know, her family was quite wealthy. Her father had a lot of money. Um, He had a farm where they grew walnuts in California. And then um, he went into the stock market and lost it all. And they then from that point on, Jean Stafford's childhood and adolescence, she was living really in quite difficult and impoverished circumstances. And one of the things that their father did to economize was he gave the children haircuts. And once he um, cut off half of Jean Stafford's hair and made – half of her hair, he was giving her a kind of bowl cut and she ran off – and so, for apparently for weeks, she had you know this head that was half bowl cut and half these long curls. So that's autobiographical. Um, she was the youngest child of a differently configured family. She had two older sisters and an older brother with whom she was very close. But she talks about waiting for them to come home from school and feeling abandoned, and how they would bring her gifts of of necklaces made out of paper clips and things like that. The question of the children, you know. It's unclear to me how real they are to the parents. I don't think, you know, the, the mother just mentions them in passing. It's clear that they're real to each other. So they have a world where they play with one another, they have games, they make kind of elaborate fantasies of cops and robbers. But even within that smaller children's world, Hannah doesn't exist. You know, it says, she says that they, or the story says that they look at her and she's just invisible, they don't see her.
0: And also, she's never again, she's never referred to by them as Hannah. She's the baby. Um, the Her brother, I think, says she looks like a skinned cat or a mushroom, <laughs> a mushroom. Um, Yeah. Uh, why do you think that the older siblings are angry with her or disgusted by her or just, you know, uninterested?
1: You know, there's a way, or at least I hear in the way that, I don't was it Janie who sort of says that baby, 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 you know, she's not the only pebble on the beach. Um, you know, there's a way in which she does have this special intimacy with their mother, you know, at least a kind of physical intimacy that the other children don't have. And this hair does seem to be, you know, it is a bond that she has with the mother. And it's easy to imagine that being a source of, Jealousy, And and it seems clear that the other children are jealous of the fact that, you know, Hannah is the occasion for this, you know, knockdown, blowout fight that the parents have. And so that's a way in which Hannah is both a total outcast and yet also in a position where these other the other children can project onto her a kind of intimacy with their mother that they could be jealous of.
0: Right. And, and yet, at the same time, the mother doesn't know her. The mother has no true intimacy with her. and right. And we're allowed to know her better than anyone, as you said. When, when she's sitting behind the, the attic door listening to the phone call and those tears start happening, what do you think is happening there? What is happening within her at that moment? Because we aren't told.
1: Right. Well, what we are told, and I actually, I think this is something really wonderful in the story. Stafford doesn't attempt to put language to the interior state. Because, of course, this child wouldn't have language. You know, but we are told that this is a different kind of weeping than she has ever done before. You know, there's that wonderful passage where not her interior state, but her exterior state is described. You know, she's crying, but she's not scrunching up her cheeks in the way that she usually does. And her mouth is not open in a rent of woe. You know, it's not this kind of histrionic, melodramatic, infant-like crying. I mean, this is the first time she's weeping as an adult. And that, to me, is just devastating. And, you know, and they are these silent tears. And so it seems just right to me that the story doesn't try to describe what she's feeling because she can't describe what she's feeling and instead, you know, uses the body to convey the fact that this is something unprecedented.
0: Right? And she uses that extraordinary phrase mothering runnels. Oh, <laughs> so good. <laughs> in in the sense that these un unbidden tears are mothering her somehow. They're caressing yeah. her, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Yeah, something. I mean, it's a it's a devastating phrase.
0: And then you know, we get the the image of those swords on the wall, and they're they're meant to be removed from uh, from the wall to make way for this painting that is now not going to happen because mysteriously the artist can't imagine the hair. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's no way he could possibly paint it now because right. he can't see it. He's um, an artist, yeah. And you know, talk about symbols. We're taking these swords off the father's manly swords off the wall to put up this you know soppy painting of of right mother and daughter with golden hair. Um, Do you think that, that that is not only the sort of central image of the story, metaphor of the story, but is what's at the heart of the father's anger?
1: Yeah, well, sure. I mean, you know, it is a kind of literal displacement of him. And, you know, in this moment that clearly for him is very redolent, you know, these this what is it, the these student duels that, you know, used to, um, you know, this is a real thing that happened. It was a real rite of passage for young men in Germany. I know there's a wonderful story about Nietzsche being embarrassed that he didn't have a scar and so arranging to have one of these duels so that he could get a <laughs> scar. And, and, you know, and the, the father is clearly very proud of his scar. Um, so there's a way in which, you know, this is a moment that for him is full of a, pre-family glory, you know, a moment of, of his coming into manhood. Um, and yes, to replace that with instead the opposite, you know, with this feminine intimacy and this feminine sovereignty, you know, take down the father and put up the mother, You know, in that heartbreaking moment where she talks about how much she loves to be at the painter's studio because it's quiet and people aren't throwing things at each other. Like you realize what an abusive situation this child is actually in and, you know, and what really an atmosphere of violence she's living in. You get the sense that actually in this very um, privileged household full of servants and beautiful things and, you know, getting your portrait done, that there is this incredibly savage thing happening at the heart of this house and that what the father really does want more than anything else is to grab his wife and shave her head and, Mm. you know, humiliate her in this way, that that is his deep desire. And he can't do that. And so he's doing the next best thing.
0: Humiliating the child.
1: (laughs) Humiliating the child. That's right.
0: And so he does this horrible thing and, and just devastates... Hannah. So she's obviously betrayed by her father. But then another betrayal happens with this overheard phone call. What do you think she feels her mother is saying about her in that call?
1: Well, you know, I mean, that phone call, it's such an extraordinary thing. And that actually is a little, I think, uncharacteristic of Gene Stafford. So there's not a lot of dialogue in Gene Stafford's fiction, there's not a lot of direct speech. But this story, I mean, really the formal conceit of it is. Um, You know, the narrative is conveyed largely through this conversation. It's an interestingly kind of deflected narrative. And the child is at once um, sort of learning things um, and then also critiquing the mother's story, you know, adding elements that she knows that the mother doesn't know about what the father has done and hasn't done. It's such an interesting way to go about telling a story. It's a way to set up a kind of nesting dolls of knowledge and of intimacy to a story and who has what pieces of information in a way that I think Gene Stafford gets a lot of currency out of in this story. And then there's also, you know, and again, this is a way in which the story keeps sort of um, opening up deeper and deeper abysses in that, you know, by the end of this conversation where this child hears her mother say, she's only a symbol, and also hears her mother say, why does one have children? You know, I mean, that's one of the most kind of devastating and destabilizing betrayals I think one can suffer as a child, you know, that the bedrock of one's existence, which is one's relationship with one's parents, and just that kind of, I don't don't even know what to call it, a kind of ontological pact, this kind of pact of existence that, that someone has willed you to exist and takes joy in your existence. Right. And the mother takes that away. I mean, I just feel myself plummet in that moment when this little child hears this.
0: And it's wonderful how how Stafford keeps us very aware that we're in this mind of this five-year-old. You know, and she, she reminds us with things like when, when Hannah says, what is anti-man? Yeah, um, and then think all she can think of is the Ottomans in the in the living room. Right, <laughs> that's know, perhaps right. Perhaps they're related to Antimans. They're Ottomans. Um,
1: what's wonderful about the story is that we do have such a sense of her as a person and as a consciousness. And you know, one of the things I think is really masterful about this is the way in which the story is at once obviously much bigger than a five-year-old's consciousness and sees the world in a much more complex way. And yet we get such a redolent sense of Hannah's interiority. You know, Gene Stafford was an acolyte of Henry James. And I I think of something like um, what Maisie knew. Maisie, yeah. Yeah, the way that, you know, she gets to both have this intimate sort of inhabitation of a five-year-old and her glorious style and her glorious adult sensibility and irony and and also you know another way in which this does feel like an autobiographical story is that i do think you know there's an artist in this story but i actually think the real artist is hannah and there's that moment when she talks about her mother twisting the ring on her finger and the way that she closes her eyes and tries to freeze the 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 image of the light glinting off of the ring or she tries to freeze the impression of the smell of the coffee and that is. That's the writer, you know, I mean, I do think that's five-year-old Jean Stafford sort of, yeah. you know, gathering images, gathering resources um, and trying to, to sort of freeze impressions within her.
0: And our culminating moment here is uh, is this moment, or penultimate moment, is this moment with the cook where she goes in the kitchen, the cook says, oh, it's my baby, it's my very own baby, which is the first time. Anyone, I think, in the story has said my baby rather than mm. the baby. Mm. It's a firm first sort of admission of possession or belonging. Um, and she bursts out with this, I love you. Oh. And the cook says, run along. Right. Um, why does she make this declaration? And, and why does the cook have such a bad reaction to it?
1: You know, there's this wonderful little clause that, that always catches me up when I read it because it's such an unusual use of, of language where it's just Hannah yearned, not Hannah yearned for Hannah yearned to. She's thinking about the cat and how the mother's touching the cat. Mm-hmm. And it just says Hannah yearned. And that is Hannah's action through most of the story until there's that wonderful turn. And instead of yearning, she hates and she wants to be a bee and to sting them all. Mm-hmm. She is desperate to love and to be loved. And she's desperately afraid that now that she's lost this hair, no one's going to love her. And so she turns to, you know, this other, the other adult figure in the house who seems to want to, I mean, literally gathers her up. And then the minute Hannah sort of tries to confirm that belonging and says to her, I love you, the cook pushes her away. I mean, Hannah's just a symbol for her too, you know. The cook doesn't actually want to be in a sincere relationship of love with this child or, or not any kind of love that might, as I think Hannah wants to, sort of place a claim. And then, you know, to me, I mean, the thing that turns this from a virtuoso, remarkable, you know, wonderful story to actually a great story, like I think pretty close to as good as stories get. Is that then she goes to the window and she looks at the snow and she's so desperate to form this connection that she says i love you snow right i mean that is really just Jean Stafford sort of not letting us have any comfort, you know? oh, no. I mean, she's really, she's not going to make this any better for us. This very brutal vision of the world she has shown us, that is where we have to, that's what we have to reconcile ourselves to, you know? There's not going to be a palliative at the end of this story. Yeah, that's where we leave it. Yeah, it's really, it's very devastating. And yet so funny and so light on its feet, you know, and so ingenious in so many ways. Um but really, it's a very, very, very painful story.
0: Yeah. So when, when Stafford put the story in her collection, she retitled it Cops and Robbers. Why do you think she did that?
1: I think that is such a good revision. So The Shorn Lamb, to me, it sort of does for Hannah what nothing else in the story will do for Hannah, which is it it puts her in the center. I mean, she is the Shorn Lamb You know, it's a quite pathetic title. To me, it's almost bathetic. You know, there's a way in which um, it makes her a little too pitiable. Whereas Cops and Robbers, which is the game the children play, I mean, that seems to me much truer to the world of the story because it's not about Hannah at all. You know, it's about the world from which she's excluded these, you know, her siblings' games. And then there's also a way in which, you know, it makes me think, too, of the parents, you know the mother says, um, "You know, no criminal is as ingenious as as a man and wife when their marriage starts to go sour." Mm-hmm. And there's also a sense that you know the 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 husband and wife they are playing a game, a very vicious and cruel game, but a game. And Hannah doesn't want to play games. You know, yeah. Hannah wants someone actually to love her. So I think Cops and Robbers, I think, is is actually a really really brilliant revision. I think it's a much better title than The Shorn Lamb.
0: Yeah, for me, I I feel, you know, I know who's been robbed, but I'm not sure where the cops are.
1: (laughs) Well, isn't that great? I mean, that's right. Yeah, there's no adult in this story. I mean, and this is, you know, and this is something that I think is really true that, again, I don't know that fiction very often faces up to. You know, one thing that I felt, um, I spent seven years teaching high school, and one thing I felt sometimes working with young people, was kind of, where are the adults in these people's lives? Where are the adults in these kids' lives? Like, where is the person taking care of this kid? And why doesn't someone in the house see that this kid is in trouble? And there's a sense here, I mean, Hannah is completely alone. Nobody is watching out for her. No one's going to take care of her. No one even notices how much she's suffering or why she's suffering. There are no cops in this story. There are no real cops who could intervene and, um, you know, protect this child from harm.
0: Well, on that very sad note, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, <laughs> Garth.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Jean Stafford, who died in 1979 at age 63, was the author of three novels, including Boston Adventure and The Mountain Lion and numerous short stories, two dozen of which were published in The New Yorker. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her collected stories in 1970. Her complete novels will be reissued by the Library of America this month. Garth Greenwell is a fiction writer, poet, and critic. His first novel, What Belongs to You, was published in 2016 and won the British Book Award for the debut of the year. A new book of fiction, Cleanness, will be published in January. You can download 149 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.